Amen. Father God, you reign. In this place, right now, you reign. What a joy it is to be here this morning. Father, we're with our brothers and sisters, your children, your sons and your daughters gathered today to worship you, Lord God. I thank you for the music. I thank you for Jeff leading the service. And I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray that as we study your word together, God, that it would penetrate our hearts and our minds. Father, that you would speak to each one of us the truth of who you are, the truth of you in each and every circumstance in our life right now, Lord God. For you are powerful and you can do that. Yes, through your word, through your spirit ministering to each and every one of us right now. So, Father, we say thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your love for us. So much so that you would give your son, your son, your son for us, sinful men and women, Jesus took our place. Thank you for that love. So we pray now that you would bless our time in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan, one of the elders here at Cornerstone. And I, I have said from the pulpit many times that I think that the hardest job in the world is that of a pastor. And yet, the most rewarding job in the world is that of a pastor. But when I see the Mother's Day, and when I think of moms, and when I think of my wife and the mom she is, I have to kind of maybe rethink that. And maybe it's a tie now. But thank you, moms. I love each and every one of you. You do a great job. You are a blessing from Almighty God to your family. So happy, happy Mother's Day to each and every one of you. You have such an amazing influence on so many lives, so many lives. So I thank you that you take your responsibility biblically as a mom to raise your children in the faith. Philippians, a great letter from the Apostle Paul while he's in a Roman prison. I learned 10 years ago a very valuable lesson about joy. Joy in fellowship, joy in the promises of God, and joy in each and every circumstance that you find yourself in. About 10 years ago, a friend of mine said, Dan, we're getting on a plane and we're going to fly to Colombia. We're going to go to Bogota and visit a few pastors there. We're going to encourage them. And we stopped in Caracas on the way and spent some time there visiting the local churches. And then over to Bogota. When I was in Bogota, we went into a prison to share the message of Christ, to encourage the prisoners in this jail. It was disgusting. It was cold. It was damp. And I'll be brutally honest with you. 
part of me was afraid that the jailer might say, who are these Americans coming into my jail? And he would put some drugs in my pocket, and I would be framed, and I'd be one of them. That's how much faith this guy has. But it didn't stop me. I said, God, you're in control, and it's more important to go into this jail and be used by you to encourage the Christians in this jail. So we went into this room, me and my friend, and obviously we had interpreters there. They all spoke Spanish. And this jail was filled with guerrillas, murderers, assaulters of every nature. These were truly the worst of worst of society. We got into a room about maybe a quarter of this room here, and there's 40 or 50 guys in there, former, well, murderers. And the joy that these guys had in Christ was unparalleled in my life. I have never, ever seen something like that in my life. They're looking at the next 10, 20, 25 years of their life in this prison. Cold, damp, and hard. And yet they had joy. And I said, how is that possible? That someone could be in prison for the next 20, 25 years of their life and yet have joy. I left the prison with my friend and we were blown away. We went to encourage them. Are you serious? And yet they treated us with such honor. I didn't even deserve it. They treated us with honor. We came, we shared scripture, we prayed with them, we mingled with them for a couple of hours and I left there thinking, wow. And this is the apostle. Now these guys were in prison and they deserved to be there. Society put them in there because they committed some heinous crime. Paul is in prison when he writes Philippians. And he's there for one reason and one reason only. He's preaching Christ. He committed no crime. He was in prison because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful story. My first point of the message today is about fellowship. The joy that we find in fellowship. But I want to go back to Acts chapter 16, if you will join me there. Acts chapter 16. This gives us the start of the Philippian church. And as I do that, if anybody needs a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand and we'll put one in your, in your, in your hand and you can keep that Bible as a gift for us. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Acts chapter 16. This is Paul. He gets saved. You, you probably are all familiar. You can go on your own and read Acts chapter 9. And you see the conversion of Paul, formerly Saul, now Paul. And he's on his second missionary journey here. And I want to start at verse 6. So, so keep in mind, this is the people that he's writing the letter of Philippians to 10 years later. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. 
a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of what part of Macedonia, a colony, a Roman colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. So that's what brought them into Philippi, was a vision that Paul had from this man saying, come over to Macedonia. This is the continent of Europe. So on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. There was no synagogue there. And the reason for that is there simply were not enough Jewish men in that city to have a synagogue. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. I can only imagine that as Paul was speaking the good news that Silas was there praying specifically for this group of people and Lydia gets saved. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So we can conclude that Lydia was the very first convert to Christianity in Europe. Now it happened as we went to prayer, a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And the girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now here she is saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, when I first read that, I said, what's wrong with that? They're saying, in the name of Christ, the way of salvation. However, if you think about it this way, she is possessed by the devil. Paul does not want to be associated with Satan, does he? Think of it this way. If you applied for a job, and someone, someone who had no reputation whatsoever said, hey, I'll give you a letter of recommendation, and I'll say you're a great guy on there, a great lady. But you know that that person that you were giving this letter to knew that that guy had a bad reputation. Even though the letter would say, great guy, punctual, hardworking, ethical, would you take that letter of recommendation? Absolutely not. You would say, no, thank you. Paul does not need a fortune teller, a soothsayer, possessed by Satan to help him share the gospel. It's not appropriate. So he cast the demon out of her. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Keep in mind, they could care less about her. It was all about the money. 
And they brought them to the magistrates and said, Hey, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the, multiple, then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Here's Paul sharing the gospel, and he's being beaten with rods. It's not the first time that Paul has suffered for the gospel. Several chapters earlier, he was stoned almost to death for sharing the gospel. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. What is Paul's response? Is it, life is unfair, this really stinks? I don't think so. He says in verse 25, At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas. I heard it said once that this was the first Christian concert in Europe. <laughs> they're praying and they're singing to God. They were just beaten, whipped. But they're singing and praying to God and the prisoners were listening. We always have an audience. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakened from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul calls with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And then he ran and called for a light. He fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his household. He gets saved twice that day. Paul saves him from physical death, and then God saves him from spiritual death. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately him and his family were baptized. His whole family gets saved. And now when he brought them into the house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Can you just imagine the scene? This is real stuff. This is the Spirit of God starting his church in Philippi. And 10 years later, we're going to, as we go through Philippians chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we're going to be able to glean back to this and understand the affection and the joy that Paul has because he was there at the start of the church. And then Paul, in verse 40, after he goes to jail, they find out they're Romans. They're scared because they violated their rights. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. They treated him as a non-Roman. They beat him without a fair trial. No accusation publicly told them. So they were afraid. And they said, hey, just get out of the city. Just get out of the city. And Paul says, we're not going to just get out of the city. You come out and tell us. But in verse 40, it says, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed Paul had such an amazing heart to encourage believers. We're going to see that in the first chapter of, of Philippians, which you can turn to now. 
There's no way Paul's leaving that city without going back to Lydia's house to encourage the believers. I believe it's probably Lydia's house where the first church started to meet in, in, uh, in Philippi. So again, this is 10 years later. I believe that Paul would have visited about two different times in between the next 10 years going back to the church in Philippi. And he starts off by saying, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now the word bondservant is literally meaning a willingness to serve someone else. And Paul had a willingness to serve his God. His God, the Lord Jesus Christ. His life did not belong to himself. He was a slave, a bondservant. And you notice his humility here too because he says Paul and Timothy. Timothy was so much younger than he was. So Paul just puts him on equal footing with him. We are bondservants of Jesus Christ to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So this church must have been somewhat established over the next 10 years that they have overseers of the church and the deacons who are servants within the church. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's my first point, the fellowship, the joy of fellowship. He already experienced the joy because he was there when the church started. He was there and God used him to save Lydia. God used him and the miraculous earthquake and so forth to save the jailer and their households. And God uses him to drive out that spirit of the slave girl. He's got this very close connection to the body there. And he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That first day we just read in chapter 16. He's going back to the beginning. I thank you because of your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel. Not only in your, in your church as you spread the good news there in Philippi, but also if you flip over to 14, I'm sorry, verse chapter 4, I'm going to read a few verses here. This is one of the reasons why Paul writes the letter, to thank the church in Philippi. And in verse 10 he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned to be content in whatever state I am in. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. I praise God for that, and I'm also sad for that. For even in Thessalonica, you, said, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, 
a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So he's saying thank you to the Philippians. And he's sending Epaphroditus back now to the church there with this letter that we can read. It's a beautiful, beautiful fellowship that, that they shared with each other. So throughout the 10 years, even though Paul isn't there, they have this beautiful connection. And the connection is what? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Only because of the work of the Spirit of God in Philippi and in his life years early when he got converted, 10 years later, even in prison, prison did not cause Paul to say, I can no longer be used by God. My circumstances are not going to dictate the opportunities that I can have. So you, in whatever circumstance you're going through in life right now, you can look at them as an obstacle or you can look at them as an opportunity. And for Paul, it was an opportunity. When he's fastened with a guard, Six-hour shifts, 24 hours a day. That's four guards that are hearing the gospel. How about that? Would you like to be chained to me for four, six hours, 24 hours a day? And then you for six hours, and then you for... That'd be pretty disgusting, wouldn't it? Think about that. But Paul didn't complain. He said, this is an opportunity for me to share the gospel with this jailer. An amazing, amazing result of that that we'll get into in a few moments. So the idea of fellowship that Paul is talking about here, he's thanking them. He says, I pray for you every time I remember you. And I, my guess is that he remembered them on a regular basis. And he's so thankful for their partnership in the gospel. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm going to get back to that promise. Just it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of, with me of grace. And he concludes by saying, For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus. In the King James it mentions in the bowels of Christ Jesus. The, it really the heart and the lungs, that area, that deep, deep emotion, that deep, deep affection that Paul has for these believers. And again, based on those experiences that God used Paul to start the church, I don't think it's any wonder or any doubt, is it, that Paul had such an affection to these people. The idea of, of, of fellowship, koinonia fellowship, is Acts 2.42. You're probably all familiar with it. Sharing in the apostles' teaching, in bread, the communion, in prayers, and having all things in common. Acts 2.42, if you want to write that down. But that's the idea of fellowship that I truly believe Paul is communicating to us here. God through Paul, that is. And my question is, do we have that here? Do we? Do we have this type of fellowship 
that Paul has with the Philippians here at Cornerstone? I, understand my heart. I know for some of you, it's no. You show up on Sundays, and that's your commitment. There are some of you who show up every other Sunday, and that is your commitment. I don't say this to embarrass you. I say this because this is what you're missing, that close fellowship. It is absolutely imperative because when you get thrown in prison, whatever that might look like, who's going to carry that burden with you? Who? You're going to be on your own? Or can you call and say, hey, I'm struggling, guys. I need your prayers. That's a good thing, to have people in your life that care enough that they will pray no matter what. They'll stop what they're doing to pray. They'll come to you and pray with you. You can invite them over to pray. We all go through hard times, guys. But if you don't have this type of fellowship that Paul is talking about, that we are willing to share our lives and do life together, it's hard. I want to draw your attention to your bulletin. Being in community. Study on your own the word koinonia. Is this evident in your life, in the life of Cornerstone? True fellowship is the one another's mentioned throughout Scripture. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Admonish one another. Accept one another. Live in harmony with one another. Honor one another. Be devoted to one another. Serve one another. And of course, love one another. Is that us? Is it? I have a half a dozen of you men that I have coin and eat a fellowship with on a deeper level than the body as a whole. I urge you guys and you ladies to make sure that you have a few families here that you do life with. And then we come together and we celebrate together corporately on Sunday mornings. You have core groups. I hope you're in a core group. If you're not in a core group, I urge you to reconsider and pray about getting into a core group. There's one out there for you. And I'll be honest with you, I think we can start more core groups because it's so important. That's time that you can share, hey guys, I need help with this, I'm struggling. Hey guys, I got a major praise, my coworker got saved. Well, those are great things that we need to hear. It's encouraging, it's edifying, right? Hebrews tells us, don't stop meeting together with one another as the day draws near, but instead encourage one another, edify one another, strengthen one another. So those are all the one another's there. And if you want, I have the uh, scriptural reference to all of those that are in being in community. So see me afterwards if you would like them. Part of fellowship, absolutely part of Cornelia fellowship is prayer. And I'm going to draw your attention to verses 9 through 11. Absolutely part of my first point. Because if you're meeting together in the absence of prayer, you're missing out on a key ingredient here. And this I pray that your love may still more and more abound in knowledge and all discernment. That you may approve the things that are excellent. 
that you may be sincere and without offense to the day, till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's praying to the people 10 years early that started the church, I pray that your love will still abound more and more. Love. He's not asking for them to abound in anything else other than love. And in knowledge. Can love be blind? Can love be blind? Since he's praying for us to abound in love, in knowledge and all discernment, I thought about maybe you young ladies. Maybe you have a desire to be married. And the first guy that comes along, it's my future spouse. Love is not blind. It's not blind. Make sure you're in prayer about who your spouse is going to be. And this goes for the men too. Oh, how I desire for everyone here that if you're choosing a spouse, that you're praying for knowledge and discernment in that key, key decision. I personally think it's the, most, the second most important decision you will ever make in your life. The first decision is what you're going to do with Christ. The second decision is who am I going to marry and spend the rest of my life with? So Paul tells them, I pray that your love will abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent. Whatever issue it is, is it excellent? that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ Jesus, and therefore being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I told you I'd go back to verse 6. My second point, we have joy of fellowship. And I do pray for you guys too, that our love will abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. The joy of understanding and trusting God in His promises. He says in verse 6, He says, Being confident of this very thing that He, God, who began a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I want to point out that your salvation is a work of God. God saves people. And when he does save people, he saves you for a purpose. To conform you into his image. To use you to spread the gospel. And it's a great thing. And God makes a promise to you and me. He, God who began a good work in you, will complete it. You have no reason to doubt that God will not complete the sanctification work in your life. God does not start a project and then not finish it. Here's a, here's a case in point. I'm famous around my house for starting projects, and then I put it aside. I'll start another one, put it aside. That's not the idea here. It's, it's, the, it's the perfect tense, confidence. It's written in the perfect tense, meaning it's a completed action. It's already happened. It's done. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it was in the perfect tense. It's finished. 
It's done. And that's what Paul is saying here, confident of this very thing. He who began a work in you, in John, in Mary, in Frank, in Bill, in Hannah, in all of you, he is faithful because he, if you guys started your work, if you guys saved yourself and you are trying to continue to walk the Christian walk in your own strength, could that promise really be a promise? It would be a worldly hope at best. And I would have no confidence in you, and you should have no confidence in me if I'm doing the work. But it's God doing the work in each and every one of us. The work has already been prepared beforehand, and he's working in and through each and every one of us. Our responsibility is to obey. Obey God. Obey what he's telling you to do. It's exactly what Paul did his whole life. God said, you will go preach to kings, you will preach to Jews, but you will preach to Gentiles. And the first time he preaches to the Jews and says it's also for the Gentiles, the Jews want to kill him. But did that stop him from completing the purpose of God in his life? Absolutely not. Not. Absolutely not. Not. Absolute proof that God is the one who started the work in Paul and will complete the work in Paul. Here's a quote from one of my favorite theologians, Albert Barnes. God abandons nothing that he undertakes. There are no unfinished worlds or systems, no half-made and forsaken works of his hands. There is no evidence his works of creation, change, plans, or having forsaken what he began from disgust or disappointment or a lack of power to complete what he started? Why should there be in the salvation or sanctification of the soul the promises of God? 2 Peter 1.4 tells us, and because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature, and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. They're called great and precious because of their value in supporting and comforting your very soul in difficult times. So I have a question for you guys. What promise of God do you need to cling to right now? What are you going through right now where a promise of God that you can meditate on and trust on and then obey on. What is it? Are you tired? Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you struggling with guilt? Shame? 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That one works, by the way, because I do it all the time. It works. When you sin, seek forgiveness from Almighty God. You're struggling with anxiety. These are real struggles, right? 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. I shared before, we ought to carry each other's burdens. That's how God works. Why would you want to carry a burden by yourself? Well, if you're not involved in fellowship, you might be carrying it by yourself. There's nothing too heavy for God to carry. 
Are you struggling with temptation? 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to stand. But with the temptation, we'll be able to provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure. Another one I use often is a lack of wisdom. James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So whatever promise that you need to cling to, I urge you to do just that. Cling to the promises of God in whatever you're struggling in right now. If you're doubting your salvation, if you're doubting the circumstances you're in, if you're struggling with guilt and shame, God addresses that. God addresses that. And finally, my last point. This is so beautiful. I may pull a dug and cry. Christ is preached. Here he is in his prison cell. By God's mercy, he's able to write a letter. By God's mercy, he's able to have visitors. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. If you want to make a note, you can go back to Acts roughly 25 through 28, all the things that happened to him. And all those things that in the human perspective, we would say, hindered Paul, hindered Paul's mission, did no such thing. Because he says here, they've actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brothers in the Lord having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The situation was a jail cell, and one of the results was that other believers recognized the, the boldness that God gave Paul, and now God is giving it to others, and now they are bold in preaching the message of Jesus Christ. It's a great thing. Not only are they bold, keep in mind, their boldness means that they could be right next to Paul the very next day. But the fear of persecution, the fear of jail, is not stopping them. If it was, they, Paul wouldn't say they now have boldness to go out and preach the message of Jesus Christ. So what do we fear? What do we fear? Do we have to fear jail here in America for preaching the gospel? Not yet. Maybe down the road. Do you fear your coworkers rolling their eyes at you if you share the gospel with them? I've been there. But we have to get rid of fear. Paul says in Galatians, if I feared man, I would not be a servant of God. I can't fear man and claim to be a servant of God. So are you a servant of God? I believe you are. So if you have fear in your life, repent of it. Repent. Seek forgiveness of God. Get on your knees and do this. And say, God, I need your strength in this area of my life that I fear. And then obey what God tells you to do. 
Just obey. You have to trust God. You pray and you go. You pray and you do. And I love the fact that these brothers have now boldness to go and preach the gospel. And you know, it worked. You know why? Because <laughs> you're here. <laughs> they preached the gospel and spread throughout the whole world. And here we are 2,000 years later. And we're sitting in America hearing the same message that they heard. That God saves sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a great message. It is the message of good news. And Paul goes on to say, Some indeed preach Christ even out of envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now, I don't think that when he says, some indeed preach Christ out of envy and strife, I, I don't think they're preaching a false gospel because I think Paul would have hammered that home like he does in Galatians to say, how dare you preach Jesus and circumcision or anything else for that matter. I think it was just people who were preaching the gospel but looked at Paul perhaps as a threat encroaching on their ministry. And I think we see that today and I think it's a shame. A shame that one ministry has a little bit of jealousy maybe towards another ministry. How dare us? Is a soul a soul? Is the message of the gospel pure? And that's why he prayed earlier that your love would abound more and more, that you may be sincere and without offense. I believe the reason why he prayed that was because he experienced it. Some were trying to make his life more difficult in prison. How much more difficult can it get? He's in prison. But God uses Paul to write 13 New Testament letters. Half the New Testament is written by a man. Four letters while he's in prison. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians. Anybody know the fourth? Philemon. Philemon. So four letters written while Paul was in prison. An amazing testament that the prison walls cannot stop the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So I go back to that question earlier. Your life, your circumstances, are they an obstacle? Or is it an opportunity to share Jesus Christ? Paul used everything as an opportunity to share Jesus Christ. Paul did it facing death. Our persecution level is really not that high in America. So you, let, let, let this testimony of Paul be, be something that God speaks to you to get out there and share the gospel. Some of you work with the same people every day. Are you sharing Jesus with them? Or are you fearful? Your neighbors, are you fearful to share the gospel with them? Guys, I don't speak like I've never had this in my life. I have. I have. But by God's grace, I am where I am this day. And I continually learn and learn and learn. So is your life, great question, is your life visibly displaying Jesus Christ? Is it? 
Don't be like a chameleon and blend into the world in certain circumstances. Let your life visibly display Jesus Christ in any and all circumstances that you find yourself in. Remember, God's sovereign. Whatever you're in right now, think of it as God's there with you. Many circumstances, you could be absolutely 100% positive. You are there because God put you there. When Paul got saved, he was blinded. And God reached out and gave a word to Ananias and said, Hey, I just saved this guy, Paul. He's blind. Go pray for him. And Ananias said, Paul, he's a persecutor of the church. He's hurting Christians. He's killing Christians. He's throwing people into jail. That guy? God says, yeah, that guy. Go down and pray for him. And he says, God tells Ananias, he says, I will show Paul how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Yeah, God. If you think that God is someone who wants you to have a nice, beautiful rose every day you wake up and your day is just walking through clouds? No. No. Romans 5 tells us that God glorifies himself through our tribulations. And through them, we develop perseverance and we develop character and we develop hope. That's the hope that's confidence, not a worldly hope that we hope it's a confidence, and God does it through tribulations, through trials, through suffering. So that's, that's us. That's us. Share the gospel. Trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in the promises of God. What else can we do but trust in Almighty God? But that's your purpose, guys. Fellowship, trusting in the promises of God and understanding that in any and all circumstances you're in, it's an opportunity to further the gospel of Jesus Christ, not an obstacle. I'm going to pray, and then uh, Dan will come up and lead us into a time of communion. So, Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the relationships that Paul had with the churches and in here, the church in Philippi that he cared for, that he loved, that he encouraged. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the joy that he found in that relationship with the church. Lord, he made it a point to go back to every single church and, and encourage and edify them. So I thank you for his heart towards the brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray that those things that we might be missing here at Cornerstone, that you might convict us of where we fall short and that you would forgive us and that you would bless us as we do life together. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation of Christ. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray, God, as they go out this afternoon to celebrate Mother's Day, as they get up to go to work tomorrow morning, as they spend time with their neighbors throughout the week, that they would see each and every opportunity as an opportunity to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us your strength and give us your heart for the lost.
In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.